Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder, the Other People podcast is a listener-supported endeavor. The best way to support this program is to get the Other People app. The app is free. Get it at your favorite app store. When you do that... The most recent 50 episodes of the program will be waiting for you free of charge. How do you support the show? You sign up for Other People Premium. What does that get you? It gets you everything. Every single episode at your fingertips, wherever you are. Sign up for Other People Premium right there within the app. It's cheap. It's easy. It's a great way to support the program. You'll have access to literally hundreds of conversations with a wide range of authors, including... People like Sheila Hetty, Roxane Gay, T.C. Boyle, Edwidge Dantica, Steve Rogenbuck, Ben Fountain, Elizabeth Ellen, Scott McClanahan, Jess Walter, Jerry Stahl, Tao Lin, Chloe Caldwell, Cheryl Strayed, Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada. Uh, the list goes on. Other People Premium. Sign up within the Other People app or sign up online. I would really appreciate that. All right. Let's get started with today's episode. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somewhat eager to please. This is best enjoyed while half asleep on public transportation. How's it going out there? Hello? Hello? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Very excited to have Amelia Gray back on the podcast. Amelia Gray uh, will be talking with me shortly. She has a new story collection out from FSG. It is called Gut Shot. Perhaps you read the glowing review in the New York Times. Perhaps you read an excerpt uh, in the New Yorker magazine earlier this spring. Amelia Gray in the pages of the New Yorker magazine. She and I talk all about that in the conversation you're about to hear. Uh, I should also mention that Gutshot is the official May selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are uninitiated, the NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. For more information, go to the NervousBreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, sign up, get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a great deal. So I had an interesting uh, week. I had an interesting experience on the internet I want to tell you about. The internet. It's very strange. It can do strange things to a man, as I'm sure you know. So, uh, let me try to tell... I'll try to paint a picture for you. I need, I need to tell the full story so that this makes sense. 
uh, I'm texting with a friend of mine. She is female. She is reeling from a breakup. Her heart is broken and uh, she's very sad and, and growing increasingly angry as people tend to uh, do in the aftermath of a breakup. So I'm texting with her about the, her ex-boyfriend. Uh, and uh, in the context of the exchange, she mentions that he has a very small penis, which I already knew because she had told me before in, in like the immediate aftermath of the breakup in the 24 to 48 hour uh, time window immediately after the breaking up was done. He broke up with her. Uh, she told me that he had a very small penis. I have not seen a picture. There's no pictures, but you know, these are the kinds of things that come out after a breakup. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't have micro penis, just in case you're wondering, you know, we all know what micro penis is. Micro penis is where you've got like nothing. It's like an Audi. You've got like a little nub, like just like a knuckle size, like piece of flesh. <laughs> it's not that bad, but she has, you know, she said like, it's very small. And she said, it's like earthworm, like to quote her and to give you a visual. So there I am. Uh, in my uh, house and I'm, I'm on my phone I'm texting with my friend trying to make her uh, feel better trying to lift her spirits she's uh, emoting she's angry she's venting talking about her ex-boyfriend his bad behavior uh, making uh, comments about how uh, how poorly endowed he is and the term baby dick uh, came up you know the term, I mean, that's a, that's a common term, right? We all know the term baby dick, not hyphenated, all one word. And we were, you know, I was using it, she was using it, we were using it to describe uh, not only her ex-boyfriend's very small penis, but also just as a nickname for him. Like, that's who he is now. Like, don't worry, okay? You're going to forget all about baby dick in a few weeks. Baby dick will be in your rearview mirror before you know it. You're going to find somebody much better than baby dick, and so on and so forth. So... Uh, yeah, we're talking about baby dick. We're making, I'm trying to make jokes. She's trying to laugh through it. We're going back and forth. And in the midst of this, it occurs to me that it might be really funny to text my friend a photograph of a baby with a very large penis. So, uh, you know, as a joke with a caption like that says, Oh, look at this baby. He's got a bigger penis than baby dick. Or he's got a bigger penis than your ex-boyfriend. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because, you know, there are, uh, there are different sized penises in the world, as we all know. And it's not like they bloom at a, you know, they come out, you come out the shoot with a, a bigger or smaller penis. If you have micro penis, I believe you're born with it. It's not like you're born with a normal sized penis and then it shrinks down to a micro penis, right? And if, and, and, uh, likewise... If you're, if you're a man with a very large penis, you are born with a very large penis, as far as I understand. So there I am, texting with my... <laughs> I told you, this is a strange internet experience. So there I am, texting with my friend, uh, wanting badly to uh, bring some levity, bring some laughter to her life. And... Uh, thinking to myself, God, this is going to be so funny. I'm going to text her this picture of a baby with a giant penis. And so, uh, I go to Google 
and uh, I start Googling, and I, I Google the phrase, baby with a large penis. So uh, I'm on Google Images, if you can picture this, and like you Google, you know, you punch in a search term on Google Images, and immediately there is an entire screen's worth of thumbnail images. And as soon as I hit return, and you know, I, I typed in baby with a large penis, hit return, there's a bunch of thumbnails. Almost instantly it occurs to me, like, wait a minute, what am I doing? <laughs> uh, what, am, am I really Googling this? Did I just do this? And then moreover, uh, is this legal? Is this allowed in America? Can you Google baby with a large penis in America anymore? And uh, so as soon as the images come up, I, I just, I'm hit with this instant wave of uncertainty and guilt and just just a bad feeling and so I close the window out before I can even really see and I then turn back to my uh, text message and I, I start explaining this to my friend uh, like I kind of instead of doing the joke and executing the joke as planned I basically uh, described the joke I meant to tell like hey uh, listen I was just gonna send you a photograph of a baby with a huge penis and uh, I googled it but then I freaked out because I didn't know if you can do that. Is it illegal to Google that? And my friend is laughing or she's, you know, you're, you're, she's telling me that she's laughing via text message. Uh, we're going back and forth about the uh, legality of Googling such things. I'm clearing my history. I'm scrubbing uh, the cookies or whatever it is. It would be funny though, right? It was a good joke. Right? I need your approval. I'm feeling uh, un, you know, uncertain about this. <laughs> hey, do you need some earbuds? Do you need some headphones? You can get 33% off of any purchase right now by going to tweakedaudio.com. That's today's sponsor, tweakedaudio.com. 33% off of any purchase. Get some earbuds, get some headphones. Enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, uh, let's, let's just do the show. My guest is Amelia Gray. Her story collection is called Gutshot. It's available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, very pleased to have her here, to have her back here on the program and to get to feature Gutshot in the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here she is, folks. This is Amelia. 
that you learn to write checks, yeah. like check marks, or actual like write a check for money. Write a check for money. In the first grade. Yeah. Gifted. That's what kids need to do. I know. Get uh, take control of your money. Yeah. I do wish that I would have been taught more about money as a youth. Yeah. It's the kind of thing like. I wish people had been more honest with me about drugs. I wish people had been more honest with me about sex right. and money. Yeah. And God. And okay. death. Whoa. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I feel like kids, I mean, like as a parent, and like every generation fucks it up in their own special way, but I feel like kids need uh, more honesty. Yeah. You know, like I'm a, I'm a big believer in that, almost to the point where it becomes like a, a pathology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a product of the time, too, because I... Um... Uh, I, I read or heard that that graduate the graduating class of this year and next year and last year like very aware of the financial crash and so now they're naturally the most reasonable with their money right the few the fewest new credit cards that kind of thing well it's like you know my grandfather lived through the depression yeah you know that kind of thing and sure. like if you lived through the depression in the uh, late you know what late twenties nineteen thirties yep you don't refrigerate your mayonnaise. Right. And you and he saved everything. Mm. Like his garage, my dad's dad, like, uh, I remember as a kid, I was there and I was probably fifth grade or something. I'm like, oh, I want to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. And my dad's like, well, we don't have a bike, so you're just going to have to deal. Yeah. And my grandfather's like, what do you mean we don't have a bike? And we go out to the garage and he had my dad's like childhood bike like Uh-oh. packed into this. I mean, it's crazy stuff like that. But Did it work? Yeah, but I mean, it was it was literally like yeah. six, you know, not sixty right. years old, but it was a it was an old bike. Was he? He sounded pissed. Well, just he was just like, "What do you mean? Like, you got to yeah. be kidding oh, me! Okay. I wouldn't throw this bike away." No, yeah, we got a perfectly good bike here. <laughs> there you. It's just forty years old. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So I mean, you know, I I, I feel like uh, having what first graders, what write checks. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a little young. Seems it was like a cursive writing practice with a purpose. Yeah. But, I mean, why not? I guess so. This is how we uh, spend money. I think we had, like, a, we had a, um, the room, they, they, they made this kind of commerce, like, like what do you, like a Model UN, except with just, like, giving money for little potholders. You're doing made. a Model UN in first grade? No, like, the style of this. I don't oh, know. okay. Like a model Grand Central Market. Okay. You're a well-educated woman. I wouldn't go so far as to that. <laughs> I went to Arizona State, sir. I went to Arizona State. Was it crazy? I didn't know that about you. Yeah. That's where you went to undergrad? Mm-hmm. Did you go uh, hog wild? In what sense? I don't know. It's like the number one party school in every like every annual survey. I remember doing a lot of swimming. Oh. I, I had a longboard. What do you mean? Like a surfboard? Like a... No, I... Two separate things. I swam and I had a skateboard that was quite long. Oh, right. A longboard and, skateboard. Yeah. And... Uh, was I was picturing you sadly with like a surfboard in a swimming pool. Like, <laughs> this is, was this none a wave? Too, none was... too bright. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they do have a wave pool now. Sure. I mean, those schools have incredible fitness facilities. If you don't have a wave pool, you're a second-rate university yeah, these get the days. Hell out. Yeah. Right. So you went to uh, Arizona State University, and uh, were you scholarly? Uh, n- n- no, I was trying to play the violin. And I was kind of bad at that. I think I had depression. I was eating a lot of ice cream. Depressed over? Um, or like chemically depressed or like situationally depressed? Probably a little bit of both. Yeah. You're like, I'm in Arizona State. Yeah. Was that it? Yeah. I, I liked the internet at just not right before it was fine to like the internet. Okay. And so, so what, what is this? Like mid, late 90s? Um, early 2000s. Early 2000s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I don't know. 
I really liked a grammar class I was in and and but I I had trouble, you know. Socially or academically? Yes. <laughs> I remember floundering through a Milton class. I, there was a there was a pop quiz on one of the books of Paradise Lost and I was so uh unprepared that I wrote him a poem about what I guessed it was about. Okay. And then uh and I gave it to him, and then before the class was over, I went and got it back, and left and wept in the halls. <laughs> I just couldn't deal with being a human. Right, having a hard time. But you know, it's a big adjustment. I think there's like the, the, these adjustments. Like everyone always says, like, oh, you know, adolescence is so hard, and like the transition from junior high to high school, and your, you know, your body is changing. Mm-hmm. That was easy to me mm-hmm. compared to some of the. Uh, transitions made in college and then especially after college yeah i'm gonna say life was hard between eight and 28 years old and now has it gotten easier yeah i'm getting i'm hitting my stride you are yeah look at you yeah i i mean i'm still scrambling really i feel like it yeah i mean los angeles though don't you love it here i do yeah i hope i can stay i mean with two kids like we want to figure it out right but it's like uh the logistics yeah have you thought about getting rich I have, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you can see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All this, <laughs> my son. Yeah. So, okay. So depression, which is a common thing for people that I talk with on this show. It's good. I think it's a common thing for people generally. I think our profession, uh, creative professions might lend themselves uh, toward those kinds of uh, moods and mm-hmm. situations more so than not. But like, was it something you had to uh, get therapy for? Was it something you had to medicate for? I mean, mine it kind of shape shifted into anxiety, I suppose, and then and anxiety has been the prevailing mood for the past ten years, I guess. Um, for which I have uh, received both medication and therapy. And does it help? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, for Do, sure. Okay, because this is the thing about ang- I mean, everyone experiences anxiety to a degree, but like when you talk about anxiety, are you talking panic attacks? Uh, I never had a panic attack and I've seen those in other people. So I know exactly what, what they are. Um, but I have had the kind of anxiety I had, I have night terrors. So I kicked out windows in my sleep and ran downstairs and unlocked and opened doors. And I uh, kicked out windows. Yeah. Like, uh, I was, there's a window next to my bed in, in, um, in grad school and I, and I jammed my feet right out of it in my sleep. I thought through the glass. Oh yeah. Did yeah. you cut yourself? No. Uh, you, did I at that time? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Were you injured? Uh, not badly. Okay. But yes. Uh, and and uh, and then I, I I after a while I I had this kind of strange um, uh, itch that kind of moved around my body, and I'd wake up in the middle of the night scratching until my legs were bleeding, like this kind of unstoppable itch i went to every kind of like skin doctor and um um like general p general doctor and and uh allergy doctor and then it was like a therapist jesus let's get you on some some stuff and it helped yeah it went away it went away Mm -hmm. holy shit and now it's hives really yeah i get hives on my eyelids if i think about things that are too disturbing to me i get them on all over like here, my my shoulder is a common hive zone. So okay, so what is it that you're anxious about? Do you know? Are there certain things that you're com- like particularly focused on, or is it just like a more general hmm. thing? Uh, it's not. It's it, it's usually about people. I'm worried about people. 
or I'm upset about people because I don't feel maybe my maybe career stuff like builds up in the background. Right. Uh, but I f- it always comes down to human interaction for me. Well, I, that's nice, though. Well, yeah. at least it's not like money. <laughs> I'm all about money. And then it's like people. <laughs> I mean, money is around. It's around, it you know. And yeah, but I mean, you know, down. people, uh, human beings, adults mm-hmm. in particular, mm-hmm. difficult. And I'm, I find myself sometimes disheartened by my own inability to easily manage uh, friendships, mm-hmm. any kind of human relationship. Mm-hmm. Not that I have like, you know, constant dramatic problems, but just as part of life, the flavor of life, like adult relationships can get complicated mm-hmm. oh, and sure. work relationships and like even like weird email uh, communications where you're like, oh, I hope I didn't offend them. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. And you can spend a day. You can lose just a day agonizing, wor- agonizing mm-hmm. about it. Is it that kind of stuff? Accumul- you know, accumulating with it? Yeah, you? that's part of it. Sure. Or are you worried about like friends who have like serious problems? That's another part of it. That's another. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Or friends who are around people who have serious problems or friends whose parents have serious problems. And it's just this weight of lots of, you know, suffering and sadness. And you feel it. Yeah. It's yeah. hard not to. Sure. Yeah. Some people can manage it, believe it or not. Really? Or I, I feel like people. I feel like people. I feel like some people are more uh, sensitive. I I think there's that, and I think also some people have very bad boundaries, and I am one of those people. Meaning, <laughs> I just you I'll, get into people's business. I mean, I'll take anything on, and I'll just go until I've had like a breakdown about it. You, you mean work wise, personally, everything? Sure. Yeah. It's hard to not, I don't know, you feel like you can help or you want to be there, you, you know, you can handle it or, you you know, and and what are we on the planet to do if not help each other? That's right. Uh, and then I, and that kind of logic really yeah. gets you, gets you. Well, no, this is the thing, okay? Because I have this thought as well. And it's like, I was talking to a friend last night and it was like, uh, you know, the typical conversation about career and it was like, I, you know, I'm, so, I'm half joking. But I'm also half serious where I'm like, what do you think I'm good at? You know, asking mm-hmm. a friend, like, like if well, I need some objective or some kind of objective outsider, like, what do you think I'm good at? And then sure. it got into like, what, sh- what should I really do mm-hmm. before I die? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Yeah. Without saying it maybe quite as explicitly. And then at some point in the middle of it, this is all happening via text, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm like, I, I just want to be helpful to people. Mm-hmm. Like I want my life to be useful to people. Some kind of service. Some kind of service. Sure. Um, what do they say? I, you know, I was like, well, you kind of are. And I was like, yeah, but I need to figure out how to do that and yeah. make money. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Do you know what I'm saying? How do I do, how do you build it all? How do you, you know, get all the, the basics taken yeah. care of without, you know, committing yourself to a life of doing things that you, that don't mean much to you? Yeah. You know, a friend of mine was reading a book about finding career satisfaction yeah he's thinking about changing jobs and a big part of the book was asking ask your friends what they think you should do what you'd be good at right and he asked people and got a vast range of responses you know like nonprofit or you know training like personal training or like a librarian (laughs) or right or um, legal counsel of some stripe, like he, things that he hadn't considered, right? And some things he had, but um, 
I think that's so interesting. It is. I mean, especially if you're hearing things that like are completely out of left field. Yeah. But that's kind of what you want. Like, are people seeing me in a way that I'm not seeing myself or whatever? Right. Right. But I think it's also, um, it can get lost. I, I feel like occupationally when it comes to how people make their livings, because everybody's got to make a living. So it, it can be hard to begrudge somebody for say, you know, if somebody's paying the bills and supporting their family by uh, clubbing, baby. Yeah, what, whatever. Doing something that might not be good for the environment. Oh, sure. Working for a company that might have like a sketchy ethical record. Right. right? You know, I have friends that are uh, in the financial services industries and mm-hmm. like that, you know, that's got its own bad reputation. Maybe not them specifically, but just by sort of guilt by association. Yeah. But, you know, you know, you can't really judge people too much. It can be very easy to get onto that track or into a situation like that. And I think that I'm trying to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good to try to avoid it. I think we all have our blind spots ethically. I mean, I was getting cheap manicures until I read that New York Times article about about right. you know, the the real cost of cheap manicures right. and the health issues that those women have and the and the labor issues and the right. you know, human trafficking. And this is probably triggering to people with anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I have more anxiety, I have a bigger problem i have a hard time i don't even want to move in the world yeah. and so i write about it sometimes okay. you know like in house heart you know they're the the couple is very like organic and fair trade and locally sourced right and they've, they've you know hired a girl to crawl into their ducts as a sex thing just like okay yeah you know and the woman has gotten so um afraid of the world that she can't even enter it yeah that's a good point because Again, it, it feels like a, a tightrope act to me because it can be easy for people to be like, oh, my God, these fucking vegans and these fair trade people, right. they're so annoying and self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, but like at the same time, the planet's uh, temperature is going up. Mm-hmm. The It's happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a catastrophe probably no matter what, at sure. least to some extent, and really a bad catastrophe if we, we don't change our ways mm-hmm. significantly. So it's like, okay, yeah, maybe the people who are doing all these things are annoying, but I think they're generally doing something. And yeah. that's the direction we need to go in terms of, we have to make, I don't know exactly what the formula is, but we have to make a big change to how we consume. Right. And it, I mean, like all of us individually. And ultimately, I think changes have to be made for us. Well, I think it has to be, I think there has to be rules and, mm-hmm. and policy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like. I, you know, this is like way off topic for literary stuff, but it's in the air and this is like, f- you know, funneling its way into your work and probably mm-hmm. into the work of countless uh, other writers out there sure. and probably people listening. But, um, you know, when it comes to uh, self-regulation, people who think that like, you know, companies are just going to like stop dumping poison into the river because it's good for people. Right. And no. bad for profits. Like, no. usually there has to be some sort of, uh, you have to force their hand. Yeah. There are people at the companies who have rationalized that it's that it's fine, that there's no proven link between the chemical they're dumping and, and the birth defects happening downstream. Right. You know? So, it's, okay, so that's interesting to me, like, when it comes to your work, because, um, and, and also to tie this into anxiety, because I think that's an anxiety for a lot of, a lot of us, myself included, mm-hmm. like, uh, environmental Mm-hmm. You kind of feel like, oh my god, like it's like a ticking time bomb. Yeah, it's out of and control. Pe- and people are playing playing violins on the deck of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, is anyone paying attention? Like, we need to do something. Um, but when it comes to your work, there is a, um, you know, like a surreal. There's uh, there's a surreal element 
to your fiction um, it seems like almost impossible to me, like some of the imaginative leaps you make and yet you pull it off. But it's interesting to hear how like it's rooted in your real life experience and you find a way to, to kind of uh, spin it off yeah. into these. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you get from, oh, my God, I'm panicked about the environment and I can't move in the world to uh, some girls crawling around in people's ducks? And, right. You know, like, how does it begin for you? How do you start one of these stories? I mean, I find it it usually is is more of a collage kind of thing. For example, the the house heart story um i i had read an i read an article about a girl i think she was in austin who drunkenly was crawling through the ductwork at her um her her um her job i think she was like trying to get in she worked at a restaurant or something terrible story she she like got stuck there and i believe she died and and then there's a another story I read at the same time of a woman, a stalker uh woman, uh is crawling down the chimney of her ex husband's or ex boyfriend's, gets stuck in the chimney and the cops have to come and get her out and I be- I don't think she died. I think she, she was okay, I mean physically. Right. And and uh thinking about that kind of strange like sort of sexual <laughs> confinement um, and that kind of that mental place and and that um, how that must have felt and how you know it would have sounded and and then thinking about that larger thing that we were talking about of you know you can rationalize any behavior or um, any um, any lack of behavior and how uh, you know I, I read that story out loud recently and was thinking how, it really sounds like I'm just making fun of the kind of fair trade organic people, which I guess I am, uh, despite being one of them more or less. And and uh, uh, but I'm I'm really trying to make a larger point about just you know you can convince yourself that you're living right, um, at, in, no matter how you're living. Right. And, and it's uh, I guess that that idea comes up over and over again uh, in the book and. So then, this kind of collage of things um, comes together, and and you know, along with different you know pieces of culture that I took in. I think I had watched uh, that movie Dog Tooth. Have you seen that? No. It's very cool, like Greek movie about um, uh, a family who's confined themselves to this kind of compound where they live, and they kind of started creating their own language and. Um, the father is the only one who can leave and he kind of goes to work and comes back and um, <clears throat> it's a very like pitch black kind of comedy. But, okay. Um, so it's just disparate elements like yeah. re- reading a story, seeing a movie, yeah, right. feeling a certain way personally uh-huh. and then you sit down to write and it seems like you have a, sp- a spectacular imagination. Oh, thanks. Right? Well, I mean, I, I think it when you read it quickly, it really probably seems a little more daunting than I wrote that that piece, for example, in, you know, six months and it's a long a long slow burn of imagination. Okay. I would say it's not just like an ecstasy. <laughs> an hour and a half of just glory. Rarely is it glorious, <laughs> yeah. You ever have that where you a story shoots out of you in like a day? Yeah. I mean I did with um usually it's a simpler story Uh, I wrote a story called Babies years ago that was one sitting and Gut Shot from Gut Shot was one sitting you know these are like 600 word stories um, that have pretty simple ideas Um, 
Uh, yeah, oh, that feels good. Sure. Yeah. Or like a good writing day. And you got in uh, Labyrinth. Uh huh. In the New Yorker. Yeah. You were telling me. But I want you to tell this story for my listeners because this is a very funny story. <laughs> so, um, and I'll start by saying because I've heard this a lot, either from friends in person or over the phone or whatever it is over the years. Writer friends bagging on the New Yorker. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter, you know. Sure. <clears throat> excuse me. You'll have people bagging on the New Yorker because it's kind of the gold standard for literary fiction. Yeah. Like if you get in to the New Yorker, it's a um, it's a validation. Absolutely. It has big influence mm-hmm. in, in a way that very few publications do. Right. If any. Maybe the New York Times can do it a little bit. But I mean, yeah. it's the, you know. Right. Uh, of course. The it's... Atlantic. I mean, there's a few publications that, that kind of confer a certain legitimacy upon a fiction writer. And I think some writers... Um, bristle against that and I think maybe it's because they sense that there's no chance or that their work doesn't is just not a fit yeah and I think other writers are just jealous and <laughs> wrestling with that whatever the case may be but um, I found it touching because uh, you were very open about being happy about it <laughs> I'm like why wouldn't you be right, right. Shit. well I mean I I empathize with the complicated feelings about the New Yorker you know as with any beast it's lumbering and doesn't always go the right way. And, you know, all of us have read a bad story in The New Yorker. Or a story, yeah, a story we didn't like. Yeah. Right. Um, let's just say it was bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking horrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, <clears throat> you've seen something and, ah, oh, I could do better. Oh, right, gosh. right, right. And that's where that feeling starts. And oh, certainly, I have felt that way. Right. <laughs> um, but also, I grew up reading The New Yorker. The New Yorker was on my parents' bookshelf bedside table along with you know Brodigan and Vonnegut and uh you know was this was this incredible kind of um I mean I I I have very few dreams in general um but but that was you know to one day be published yeah so like a bucket list kind of thing sure I I was sending unsolicited submissions when I was 20 you know right for heaven's sakes did but you do that all the way up until i mean recently or unsolicited stuff yeah or did uh, you start having your agent send it um to the big ones i started having my agent send it maybe two years ago okay um, but i've i've sent many an unsolicited after uh threats uh yeah now even, you're like i can have my agent <laughs> do this well not always uh but she likes to 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 have the a couple because she likes to cultivate her own you know relationships and right. it's a it's a nice symbiotic right thing um so okay so take us inside the right. moment when okay. you like so uh, labyrinth gets published this mm-hmm. past spring by the new yorker right and my actually my my editor emily at fsg she sent them she was talking to them about a, a different collection um which was mostly uh, uh, it was a it's a posthumous collection and the stories are mostly published elsewhere and so they were going back and forth about whether they could take any um, and then he said well you know I'll see you at um, this kind of the, some pen American party or whatever right and she said hey you should check out Amelia Gray's stuff and sent him all of my unpublished as a single PDF um, and and he said oh cool we'll take Labyrinth and. Like just like that. That was it. Did he read the whole thing, or did he just point I to it? I don't know. I don't know. I she sent the she she said, "Hey, they're you know the New Yorker is effing taking effing labyrinth," and 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 the whole email thread was there, and I saw just how simple it was, and it seemed completely crazy and not true. 
And uh, okay, so you so when when do you get this news? Uh, I was I had just woken up. Uh, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, LA time. I think I was up early. It was maybe six a.m. The cats are always up early. I saw this email. I start crying, and I, I, I I'm. What does the email from your uh, editor say? Uh, that it's effing taking. Yeah. Oh, I I would have to look at it precisely, but it's something like, like maybe it's just all caps. Holy shit! The New Yorker exclamation points to the end of the page. <laughs> Oh my <laughs> it's just God. like, yeah. So I just triggered immediate tears, um, which are not not a big immediate tear maker, but that's right. what happened. And um, and I start shaking my boyfriend um, Lee to wake up, and and he's like, "What?" And then he's immediately alarmed because I'm sobbing, and I just repeat, I'm just repeating, New York. New York. <laughs> just, he's like, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> what happened in New York? It's, it's 9-11. Holy shit. It's 9-11 like, all over do, again. What do we do? Yeah. Like, do we get our go bag or something? Uh, <laughs> like, no, the New Yorker. Oh my God. That's sweet. Yeah. And then I, um, and then I, there was a brief and embarrassing time when I convinced myself that it was only going to be an online story. And, and I was calling my, editor multiple times to make her tell me that it would be in print because the turnaround was pretty fast it was right. like two weeks to well, see now i had i had talked to ben Laurie on this uh show and he had a you know a, a not totally dissimilar experience where it was like out of nowhere his agent had sent you know sent along a story they were like we'll take it mm-hmm. and then two three weeks later it's and, in the magazine and his was first time agent who was she was also just trying to establish connections yeah i mean it's a, but i mean it's like just it seems to me like a, an outfit like the new yorker would have these stories booked like way out in advance yeah but it's kind of comforting to know that like they're just racing against deadline like everybody else like, yeah I th- i've heard it go slower too though i mean i think it could it could be it could be one or the other. Anyway, I I mean, sometimes they have a gap in the schedule. They're sure. like, let's let's give a young let's give a young girl a oh shot. Oh my god! Yeah. So okay, so let's talk about what happens after you appear in the New Yorker, because it does change, at least in you know maybe in a way that's unmeasurable. Yeah. People's perception, like, have you felt anything differently in terms of like how people receive your work? Have you? Has it been easier to publish elsewhere? Has it been easier to get uh, this collection reviewed? Have your friends started being nicer to you? <laughs> you know, no, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not certain. It's hard to. It's hard to know. Um, Do you feel better about yourself? Oh, every day. Every day, you just look <laughs> in the mirror. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah, no, I. I it's a. Uh, it's I don't. I don't know. It's business as usual a little bit. I do. There was one one thing in that laundry list you mentioned that had changed, but oh, oh right. Um, it it is when talking to uh, booksellers. I found it it good to mention. Sure. Because there was a in in touring for the book, my publicist had me, you know, go to booksellers conventions where you're seated with a table. Of, it's a little bit of a of a strange situation. You're seated at a table with twenty of your books, and uh, booksellers come up to you and you pitch your book to them. And then they say, like, eh, I'm not interested. And then they keep going. And you're like, I'm giving them away for free. I wrote this for six years. Right. Please. <laughs> but if I, I realized about halfway through the first one of these that if I I said, oh, and the story was in The New Yorker, then, yeah, you know, people's eyes light up. And it's just a I, – I can't blame them. It's kind of a well, numbers no, like I, game. Yeah, well, this is what I always say to people who are uh, – 
out shopping for agents or even people who are looking for a publishing deal, like name drop. Mm-hmm. You know, not because you want to be gross, but because they're dealing with ma- you know massive amounts of submissions, right. and they're trying to figure out who's legit and right. like. Yeah, know. I think the larger piece of advice is like have have empathy for what they're doing exactly what they're going through, you exactly. know. And if they're reading, you know, twenty cover letters a day, you know, you make want it easy to on make them. it a little easier. Yeah. So you're telling these booksellers I was published in the New Yorker, and then they, you know, they might be more likely to pick it up and at least look at it and from there if it's not for their their readership in santa barbara or whatever that's totally fine right that's that's on them where are most of your readers do you know geographically where your people are lots of people in new york and la which is great some sf yeah uh, stronghold in austin still feels good oh Uh, yeah denver and minneapolis are looking good okay Uh, portland what does that mean they just they're going to stock your book and push it and give it good placement or whatever yeah yeah i mean i'm just I, I'm just going by, I, I looked at the, um, Amazon sales rank by, by, oh yeah by, um, location, okay. uh, just recently, like coming off tour saying like, all right, well, how did things do based on like Amazon sales alone? So it's a little hard to know because all my great indie booksellers are not listed on, on Amazon sure, rankings, sure. but, um, yeah, in terms of like where people are talking about it and telling their friends, you know, I went and saw her at at green apple and in sf and check it out like you know you get a sense yeah you get a sense so uh publishing a story in the new yorker uh have, do you think it's really significantly helped sales like boost sales for the collection i don't know i hope so you don't know yet no i don't know well i'm i'm shielded from from the real statistics of sales um, i find a lot of authors are yeah it's nice it's i mean it's nice in a sense but it's also like how am i doing yeah, I feel like I don't want to know. You don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times, I mean, with threats, I found the, in terms of physical copies, I would have, uh, I would have more returns than sales in a way that didn't seem possible, but is. <laughs> <laughs> People are returning, they, they, they return more copies than were actually printed. Exactly. They're like running off copies yeah. at Kinko's and yeah. just sending them back. Sending it back. I don't want this. I'm like, okay. Emphatically. Sorry. So, okay, so what, uh, and you work in advertising as a day job, mm-hmm. but you have a good gig because you can work at home. Yes, so I just, I quit my my full-time in-house day job and started going freelance. You did? Yes. But you have enough connections to keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. And it's a good, it's also luckily a good time for copywriters. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, related, become a copywriter. Yeah. Think about it. I should. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you... You do this, it gives you some flexibility of schedule so you can do your creative work. Mm-hmm. What does a day look like? Like, How do you do the work? How diligent are you? Are you an everyday person? Are you up at the crack of dawn? Are you up all night? I'm an everyday person and I'm a morning person, usually. Um, I just finished a draft of a novel and I'm going back through and editing it and finding that editing has been less of a daily assured um time than than the generation was i think i need to find the right time to edit and i think now that i now that i say it out loud i think that i edit better in the afternoon so i should try that maybe this afternoon it's i i have been a little bit my mojo's off a little but um, you know but i find people uh who you know you do a book mm. you have this big big huge exciting spring you're mm. sobbing in bed right <laughs> every day right yeah in the shower <laughs> every day new york and at the table yeah just, just you yeah. know but then you you know the book rolls out there's a 
a drumbeat of excitement and anxiety that goes along with the release of any book. Mm-hmm. I don't care what author you are. Like, mm-hmm. It's just exciting. Yeah. And, you know, and your, your baby is making its way out into the world, to use like an overused uh, comparison. But And you're also spending a lot of time looking at the baby and thinking about the baby. And the baby is really, you know, pieces of, of her are six years old already. So it's very backwards looking. It's hard to think about right. what's next. And then, and yeah, and then you're also on tour. Uh-huh. And you're doing put and you're answering like email interviews and you're uh-huh. sitting in somebody's garage. Uh-huh. You know all the <laughs> very warm in here. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're almost asphyxiating from the heat. And you know the the point being it's like it's hard to be creative in that mode. And I think it's like when you go through all the trouble to, to write a book, get the book published, uh, you know, go out and try to give the book a push publicity wise and whatnot. You gotta you gotta let that part of the process happen. You shouldn't also be putting pressure on yourself to be like writing the next thing simultaneously. Yeah, that's kind. Of, yeah, that's that's where I'm at too. I, I say that and think that, and that is true. It's not like you're not working, right? You know, that, you're, yeah, you're pushing this book out. Like it deserves all the work that went into it. It deserves this period of time for mm-hmm. you to you know, and then at some point you stop and you move on. Yeah, and the book continues churning and turning, and people pick it up, and that's the cool, weird thing about books yeah um they go on they go on <laughs> long after our pathetic demise <laughs> so okay so this is your thing mm. writing fiction literature <laughs> like you found your thing i i i have found yeah i have found a thing that i'm enjoying now it's hard to but say, you're good but, at it well thank you uh yeah i you like doing it you can do it every day without a problem I mean, not that it's not challenging. Most days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not hard for you to get to the table and sit down to write. Right. You can get into... Do you ever reach like a state of like creative flow? Does that happen for you regularly where you sort of like step out of time and like really are in the thing and it's like really feels good? Yeah, it's probably been six months since I had a real good day like that. But yeah. And how often were you having those on this book? I mean, like, uh, I guess it's a six-year process, but you'll, you'll you'll have... because this is another another part of being a creative person that I don't think anybody really tells you or often does not tell you, uh, or I just wasn't told, okay. <laughs> that uh, human energy, human creative energy um, works in cycles. Sure. You know, and like, so there's there's periods in my life where physically I just feel like really like mm-hmm. alert and strong and active. Mm-hmm. And then there's other, for, you know, one week it'll be like, oh, I guess Mercury's in retrograde mm-hmm. or I feel lethargic and you, you don't even quite know why. Mm-hmm. And then other, you know, other periods of time, you're going to just be so on it creatively. And, like, yeah. and then the next week it's different. And, and I also think that, that it's, I, I really love having a lot of different projects because when, when I'm off on a novel, I might be on, on a short story, or if I'm off on both of those things, maybe I can write like a TV thing or when I'm off on all of that, I can at least write a banner ad and, you know, it's not that it's even hierarchical even, it's just this, this sort of like, uh sushi conveyor belt of of ideas and and modes and you know comfort levels and um but you can always be busy doing something there's always something yeah i mean and you like to do uh tv and film as well is that part of your aspirational situation it's something that i'm enjoying playing around with yeah um i i i think it's i think it's fun and cool do you do you uh like set goals for yourself like do you look to the future and say you know, Amelia, uh, not that you would refer to yourself. I just talk to myself all day, yeah. <laughs> but do you look to the future and say, you know, I want to publish X amount of books. I want to make a career in literature. I'm working to get to the point where I'm going to make a living from my books. 
Mm. Or is it just kind of more of a one day at a time? It's totally a one day thing. Okay. <clears throat> I don't see myself making a living off of my books. You don't? No, I don't think so. You see yourself doing it in advertising or possibly film and television? Yeah, that seems more likely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just um, uh, from what I write and what I'd like to write and the the level of financial reward spaced out over the number of years it takes to generate something that I can be proud of, then it's just not, I don't know, I don't want to put pressure on on, on all of that, additionally making it financially solvent. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard enough. Right. You know, and then really? to be thinking, like, this is the one. This has got to be it. This is the golden ticket. This, I, yeah, this <laughs> one. It's going to be this one. My Bill O'Reilly book. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is... I guess he's just got that TV show and he's got that loyal audience. Yeah, you know, I, everyone's convincing themselves of something. Killing... What is it? Killing Jesus. Killing, oh. killing Santa Claus. Oh, my God. It's killing everyone. Yeah. It's so weird because um, there's like an undercurrent of violence in him that I feel is like very, very detectable. Mm-hmm. Anger. Yeah. He's an angry guy. Right. Or at least he's able to perform anger in a really visceral way. I think he's an angry guy. Yeah. And so, you know, he writes these books with killing and it's all about somebody got killed. Right. And I'm wondering, does he, is he self-aware enough to be like, like playing on his own persona? Mm -hmm. Or is this just like what he really thinks is good? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like how much is he in on the joke? Yeah. That's a good question. I used to listen to those things, those programs a lot to try and figure out that exact thing okay mm -hmm. this is the we're coming full circle okay because i did too and we talk about anxiety yeah i had to stop oh yeah because my wife would be like i would i went through this phase of my life and i think it was during the bush years mm -hmm. when i was really confused about everything i was sure. like how is this happening and i would sit i would sit home at night uh and i would watch like msnbc and then turn on Fox. Oh, man. And just like ping pong. Comparing. Just trying to get the narratives. Because, wow. you know, and then you go online and you're like, oh, okay, so Drudge is going to drive this. So I yeah. know it's going to be on the news at oh, night. Yeah. And you can start to get all caught up in the circus and you're trying to see how the machine is working. Right. You're reading and all the comments. All the, Yeah. Just all the craziness. And yeah. uh, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, environmental anxiety and about consumption. And, you know, you can talk about fair trade and you can talk about food and you can talk about, you know, fossil fuels and all this stuff. But media consumption in terms of our well-being mm -hmm. is something that I didn't give credence to. And I'm going to sound like an old person saying this until I became a dad. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was really explicit. It just sort of the timing sort of matched up. You start to think like, oh, what can I have on in the house? You know? Oh, sure. I don't think I, my four-year-old needs to be watching right. like game, you know, game of Thrones or whatever. Right. Um, but it just, I started to get more, um, I started to get more affected mm -hmm. by violence on screen mm -hmm. it would affect my sleep more mm -hmm. um i still am that way if i yeah. watch something super violent before bed in the past i would sleep like a baby mm -hmm. sure <laughs> and nowadays it's like you know what i'm gonna not sleep i need to watch something that's gonna make me feel good and yeah. i should be reading things that nourish me yeah in yeah. some kind of way and yeah. watch television that brings something to the table other than like some asshole's anger right i mean i think about that too it's i i remember um, staying up nights at Arizona State University, just reading autopsy after autopsy, yeah. uh, you know, just in the weeds on like Buddy Holly's autopsy and, and, you know, looking at the weirdest, worst, you know, stuff. I don't know. Well, you know, it's funny cause I had a, like, and I, this is another thing that I think is common 
for uh, teenage boys, I guess, but I had a huge horror movie phase, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a teenager, and I think when you're in college, you're like, like, I think part of it is adolescence. You're, you know, there's a, there's a psychological read of horror from the adolescent perspective and why it's so resonant mm-hmm. when it comes to like bodily changes and bodily mm. fluids oh, and yeah. bleeding and right. you know all these things and yeah. so it registers and it, it sort of you know I can understand the fear connection there right. you want to be terrified it's a weird yeah. time and, well, and then, everything is like pushed to its edge in a way that feels very compelling I'm sure yeah and then you go to college and you know you're growing up and you're becoming an adult and your childhood is you know starting to fade away yeah. and so maybe mortality becomes for the first time something that's like i mean obviously you're 19 you're still a kid but yeah. I, I can kind of get why autopsies and yeah. plus like you're so wide open at yeah, that age right you're like i'll look at the autopsy yeah. i don't care like i want to yeah. know everything right you know? and kind of push myself right. to the edge and see what that's like and but now i i don't know going on 10 years out of that or or more i think you know of all the things I've seen that I can't unsee in in reality and on the internet and, you know, thinking about what, what was the use of all of it? And some of it had use and, and, uh, even some of the worst of it had, had its use. Um, but I would say some of it had no use. (laughs) No. And it's like, you know, and like the thing is, is that as a kid, I remember rolling my eyes at all these adults who were like, you know, no TV, no violent movies. And, you know, really, and I think, to a certain degree, I, I agree with my younger self. Like you don't want to, you don't want to shelter kids from the world right. to the point where like they go out into the actual world and are shocked. Right. But they had a point. Sure. You know, because if you watch uh, images of violence repeatedly, it, it, you know, you become desensitized. Yes. And it becomes like this normal thing. Like, oh, he just got his head blown off. Ha ha. You know, and like, yeah. I guess like there's some way that you could view cinematic violence, for example. Um, you know, like a Tarantino-esque, like, you know, violent moment that somehow has you laughing. Like, that's an interesting moment. What does mm. that say about us? And, mm-hmm. like, it becomes kind of a cultural commentary. Mm-hmm. But I, I got to be honest. Like, when I watched Django Unchained, mm-hmm. like, I closed my eyes at some points. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is too much mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, if other people love it, fine. But, like, it just, I just got to a point where I was like, ah, you know, like, mm-hmm. I can't take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think that life is about boundaries and about pushing through boundaries and... I, I Am I a pussy? Um, yeah, man. You're a pussy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's about working through being a pussy. <laughs> I didn't used to be. Yeah. But I just, uh, you know, when it comes to like wellness, mm-hmm. it, peacefulness, being at ease in the world, um, media consumption, it's the same thing as like if you're drinking tons of caffeine. Yeah. Like you're drinking like 20 Red Bulls. Mm-hmm. Like, of course you're going to be anxious. I mean, I. I Part of part of quitting my job was, I mean, part of taking on the full time job, which was a fifty hour a week plus a two hour a day commute. Um, part of that was me saying, you know, let's not be precious about artistic creation. You can do it at work. You can do it in an office. You can do it at a desk. You could do it on a bus. Was it true? Uh, yeah, but then a year and a half later, I I quit because I. I wanted to feel precious about it again and kind of make it my own thing and protect it and, and say, you know, I want to be able to write in the afternoon. I want to be able to write in the morning. I want to get up in the middle of the night. And, and so it was like a kind of pushing myself past a boundary that I had made and then, um, and then kind of reestablishing it. And, 
And then, Why did you? And you just reestablished it because you wanted to make it precious again. But like something must have been. I mean, obviously, working a fifty-hour-a-week office job and commuting two hours is—it's hard. It, it wears you down. And and also, it's I, in any when you enter any community, you you take on its rules and and its functions. And you know, I started to really be interested in buying stuff and like having cool stuff and you know having yeah. nice things and okay. <laughs> So, um, we have Netflix and Hulu. Mm-hmm. Get rid of them. Well, but we Oh, get... <laughs> okay. No. Okay, go ahead. Uh, you know, baby steps. Mm-hmm. But, like, no longer... We're a cord-cutting family. A what? A cord-cutting family. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the basic cable package is not sure. part of our existence. We just have, you know, uh, HBO and mm-hmm. Hulu and Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Netflix, no advertisements. Mm-hmm. Our daughter has been raised without commercials, largely. Hulu does have some, right? But they're not as. It's not like when you, your kids watching like Disney Junior, mm-hmm. and every commercial is like kid products marketed perfectly to kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, yeah. every once in a while, we'll go to somebody's house and she'll watch these things. And you know, sure enough, we get in the car and she's like, "I want mm-hmm. such and such." Mm-hmm. And you know, like yeah, when yeah. you're confronted with those uh, messages constantly, mm-hmm. even somebody like you, who I, you know, a smart uh, woman, sure. understands like what's happening, it gets in there. It gets in there. You know, it gets hard in there. Oh yeah. So you got to be conscious of what you're consuming media-wise, and like I think about the internet, especially because I'm jumping around on it all day long. Mm-hmm. And why? Yeah. My phone, Twitter, sure, sure. constantly, and like. You know, do you, because you're social media. Sure. To a degree. I mean, it's what I did for a living. What do you mean? Like, uh, m- my advertising specialty is social media. Okay. Yeah. So you're good at, like, social media messaging, mm-hmm. how to build, like, do an ad campaign. Sure. On, okay. SEOs and... All that stuff. Oh, yeah. How do you SEO? Search engine optimization. <laughs> how do you SEO? Like, if you're trying to sell a widget, yeah. like, you can go to what website to figure out which keywords to use and all that right. kind of stuff. Well, I, I'll I'll specify that my SEO work was mostly marketing based, which kind of ended in in oh uh, well maybe in 2011, yeah. and it's very different now. Okay. Um, but it used to be that if you searched for um, online floral arrangement degrees, um, the first 30 or 50 websites would would uh, be uh, w- would link you to original articles that people had written uh, that were uh, advertisements, advertorial, and kind of l- under the same umbrella company uh-huh. uh, that served maybe fifty thousand different websites. So, um, so you would l- it would feel like you were reading original content, and you were, um, but you're also being tricked. So you thought you were getting variety, and you were really just getting funneled into one thing, right? Why? Did they just have SEO gamed? They did. Yeah. That's what it was. It was. And and I I believe Google has gotten uh smarter as a program. It's the blocking the, that sort of behavior. The way it crawls and finds, you know, what what is actually unique content has Yeah, cuz like I, more I, more I Google like my show and like my show doesn't even come up a lot. Right. Like I'll Google like a person and I'll yeah. be like, you know, does this my my show's SEO sucks. Yeah. If well, anybody listening, like, if anybody listening can help me fix it. I'll help you fix it. Really? Sure. On my website? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're okay. hired. <laughs> Great. Um, so you're doing this day job. Uh, did your creative work suffer? Your book work and your, you know, your, your writing? Uh, I'm sure it changed some. And I'm, I'm sure I did a little less of it. Uh, 
I, I'm, I also think that I was pretty good at building a little fence around my morning and, you know, people would know, like my coworkers were incredible and kind and they knew that I would, that I was going to write when I got in, you know, if I got in at eight or seven, I was going to write an hour or two and, and, you know, people would kind of let me do my thing and, and then, and then we would start working at nine or 10 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, I, it was such a. I was really lucky in that way. And and I think um, I talk a big game about having a full-time job and, and how hard it was. And, and it was easier than it could have been. Sure. Because sometimes, of course, you have a full-time job and you're on your feet all day, you know, serving people eggs. And that's a very different full-time job. Right. That's <laughs> very, a lot harder to write. Right. Um, and, so, and, you know, advertising, there is a, like, people are creative in advertising. Yeah. And I think more inclined to be sympathetic to somebody who has like an artistic mm-hmm. um what do you call it avocation mm. is that the right word vocation i don't know, I don't know. um yeah and what do you think i am a writer <laughs> <laughs> Avo- avocado yeah maybe the that's the right word yeah. so okay so you quit you're freelancing yeah. you're publishing in the new yorker mm-hmm. do you feel kind of triumphant it's been a good couple months yeah i feel good feel good about yourself yeah Feel ang- strong. Did the anxiety go down after the New Yorker? Um, did it help? You know what I'm saying? Did, did you? Because hmm. th- you're like you're taking off a big life goal. Not mm-hmm. that you have a lot, as you said, you know. Right. But you ticked off a big one, and like, did it make you feel like okay? Like if I die tomorrow, I did this. It did not feel that way, um, but I, I mean, it felt great. It feels great, and I remain grateful. Um, but I, I, it's a, it was a surreal enough experience for me. That I feel like I, 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 I don't know if I couldn't enjoy it exactly in the way I imagined I would, or if I even really imagined enjoying it. Yeah. Like what does that require? Well, life's false summits. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it's like when your yeah. first book comes out and you go to the bookstore and you're like, you're expecting somehow like confetti to fall, yeah. and then it's just kind of sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. like, Okay. <laughs> I've always been. I want to go to one of those Hudson's booksellers and and have my book be there and just. It's not there. It's. Oh, no, I haven't seen... Well, Threats was there a long time, or years ago. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, you've appeared in a Hudson's bookstore before. Yeah, not for long. And okay. But my, my dream is to go up and, and be like, I wrote that book. Yeah, right. And someone, to just like really like make someone feel uncomfortable and unwelcome <laughs> in the hover. Hudson's booksellers. Yeah. I'm just like, I wrote that. Are you looking at that? <laughs> that book? No, 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 not that one. That Graham Greene. It's called Threats. Right. <laughs> T-H-R-E-A-T-S. <laughs> A friend of mine thought the book was called Treats for a year and a half. Well. She was like, who wrote Threats? That's weird. <laughs> um, how much longer do you want to tour? Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of done. I am going This is the to grand the, finale. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm going up to Seattle for a um for a reading at the Hugo House in a couple weeks. And, What's that? Um, I should know what that is. Is it a major cultural institution? Yeah, they do good work. Okay. And um, uh, I, I, and then that's I guess a year and a half, and are we a week and a half from from this very moment? Okay. And uh, and then I think that's it for for um, Gutshot official stuff. Right. I'm gonna do some LA kind of readings. And back to the old. You got me out to read. Yeah. It's rare. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. And people keep talking about how great that was. Yeah. And you. Yeah. Yeah. You were good. You're, I should say, too, for people who have not seen Amelia Reed, you're a good performer. Oh, thank you. You have some of that in you. 
I'm a scenery chewer, my mother says. But not a lot of writers have that. The scenery chewing. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, just like when you when you read your story, you performed it. Mm-hmm. A lot of writers just read their story. Yeah. While like the book trembles in their hands. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's a breathing trick to make it not tremble. Yeah. That, I didn't notice you. I don't think you had that problem. No, I brought an iPad. Oh, okay. It's heavier. Mm. That's the trick. Mm. A piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You're it's trembling. Always, it's always trembling. Yeah. But if you put it on a PDF and put it on an iPad, mm-hmm. the weight of the iPad. If you're wor- reading from a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or, but if you have a, this is a hefty, yeah, hefty book published by FSG, oh boy, the weight of that book, <laughs> there's no trembling. No, never. <laughs> FSG books don't tremble. <laughs> Not in my house. Yeah. Um, okay, and then it's on to the next novel. Yep. Any any clues as to what it's about? Uh, it's historical fiction, uh, set a hundred years ago, and it's mostly taking place around Europe and. Uh, mm, no, Greece is in Europe, so all Europe. Okay, so that's different though than what you've done. Greece. We'll just do historical fiction. Yeah. Totally. So a lot, I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah, but I mean, it, I I had never written a mystery book before. Threads. I I kind of have a thing where when I'm doing a big book, I don't know. I I, I want a big challenge. So um, I guess I haven't done it enough to say that that's my thing exactly. But I wrote a mystery without having ever did you just read mystery after mystery after mystery to prep for that no i thought it would be better to not okay and i then... mean i grew up reading them I, I i remember at um in when we lived in charlotte the library was always selling like brown bags of mystery novels for 10 cents or whatever so i would end up as like too young reading some really messed up like mystery who? novels. Who, who are big mystery writers for you Oh, I don't know. Oh, I mean, like, it was like, it like the Raven brown, Chandler? the brown bag special. No, it was okay. like Agatha Christie if I was lucky. But right, but you know, um, and then total and then, pulp fiction kind of things. I uh, mean, I love Shirley Jackson, and and you know, uh, but like for the historical fiction, mm-hmm. you reading historical fiction, or are you just like doing no research? Are you... no. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing some research. Yeah, okay. I just you're like of, no, I'm just I'm <laughs> making it up. Just making it all up. <laughs> Got it all up. I here. am making a lot of it up. I'm That's kind of, right. yeah, I kind of, because it, it feels good and free. I, I want to try to not feel bound up. And so I'm telling myself, like, oh, I'll fix it in draft. Well, it's an interesting question because it's like, does it really matter if you get all the period detail right? Because even in the best literary fiction, there's going to be, I mean, there's a big element of imagination. Sure. So the question <laughs> is, like, where do you draw the line? I mean, I was very accurate in threats about dentistry, the history of dentistry and the history of teeth and tooth related problems and different cultures who believed in in that we had worms in our teeth um <laughs> and nobody called me on that it was all true yeah uh, and it was all meticulously researched but i i did one interview with the dental hygienists group of southern california and the only question was is that stuff true when it when i yeah you're like yes yes it was true every word of it yeah. That's interesting. Like, see, you have a, a, an interesting mind. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I live with it, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, it, uh, it's, it's funny, though. And, and so after that happened, I started making stuff up just to kind of, I don't know, be some kind of lame punk about it. Pussy punk. Pussy punk. Yeah, about it. Oh, I'm going to make up something <laughs> fiction story. <laughs> Um, 
Well, I congratulate you. Thank you. It's been, it's been really fun uh, to see your story get published in The New Yorker and to see this book uh, come out and to feature it in the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. I am I am proud. And to have you on this show for a, know, sec- a second time. Number two. A rare uh, second visit. This is great. Yeah. New garage, same microphones. Yeah. Things are changing. <laughs> Things are changing for the better. <laughs> Like a springs <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. Well, yeah. It's a exposed. It's exposed beams, Amelia. Mm, it's, it's rustic. It's very hip. Yeah. Thank you for coming over. Well, thank you for having me. All right, folks. There you go. That is Amelia Gray. Isn't she delightful? Go get her story collection. It too is delightful. It's called Gut Shot. It's available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, you can find her online at ameliagray.com. You can follow her on Twitter, where her handle is at Gray Amelia, at Gray Amelia. Don't forget about the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, sign up for that. You get a book every month. Great thing to do. A lot of great titles coming up this year. I pick the titles, just so you know, and then I interview the authors here on the podcast so it can become a holistic learning experience. Do you see how that happens? Enrich yourself. We do have some great titles, though. And I should say, too, that Jonathan Evison, the author, many of you know him, uh, or know of his work, he helps me to curate the book club. So we pick some good ones for the for the rest of the year. Thank you to Kill Rock Stars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, if you would like to email me, if you have something to say, if you have thoughts about the show, thoughts about me, thoughts about yourself, whatever it is, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. And, you know, uh, oh, you know what I also want to say? I want to deliver a PSA. I'm actually recording this on the day that I lost a friend four years ago uh, to an accidental uh, prescription drug overdose. And I just want to say uh, that addiction kills. And if you're struggling with it, get help because it's treatable. But untreated, it's uh, deadly. And it will kill you. I didn't cry. I literally had something in my throat. I'm just saying addiction kills and uh please do get help if you're thinking about getting help if you're on the fence if you think like oh god i gotta i gotta stop this go get help now do it there's strength in that and you'll save your own life and you'll save uh, a lot of pain and anguish for those who care about you and trust me there's lots of those people even if you think there's not so how's that and uh, don't google uh, anything involving babies and penises (laughs) How's that for a tandem PSA? Please don't kill yourself with drugs, and please don't Google babies with big dicks. Thank you. It's not worth it. You know, there is, I mean, it's in a free country, freedom of expression, I think it is. I mean, of course it's legal to Google that. But you got to be careful, you know? The NSA, the search history, who knows what's on your computer? And you don't want to go on, any, on onto some website that's filled with a lot of creepy uh, photos. You know, that's that's. You don't want to go to a website that is illegal. It's dangerous. It's a slippery slope. You got to be careful in the name of uh, humor, especially if your uh, sense of humor skews dark as mine does. How do you not have a dark sense of humor? I don't understand people who don't respond to dark humor. Like it's it's all like funny, silly, happy humor. What is that? That scares me. Go dark or go home.
Please remember that Rudyard Kipling's first language was Hindi and that Helen, the most uh, famous woman in Greek mythology, does not have a Greek name. Helen is not a Greek name. I don't know what it is. What is it? Irish? I don't know what it is. Helen? English? What the fuck is it? Thank you to uh, Amelia Gray. She's wonderful. Thanks to, uh, thanks to FSG. Get Gut Shot. Pick up that book. Get it in your hands. Own it. Carry it with you on the uh, subway or the bus. And use it uh, in an emblematic way. In addition to reading it. Use it in an, em- you know, in an emblematic way and uh, advertise your intelligence. Connect with others who might share similar interests. And... Uh, date them, uh, go, you know, fall in love with them, fall out of love with them, uh, be broken up with by them, be shattered by them. And then in a fit of anger, talk about their genitalia with all of your friends. <laughs>